Capturing chaos from the sudden end to America's 20-year occupation of Afghanistan to the start of Europe's biggest conflict since World War II in Ukraine. Marcus Yam has been on the ground for the Los Angeles Times, sometimes risking his life to provide us with the first draft of history as he photographs and writes about some of the most dramatic moments of the 21st century. Through his lens, we've gained a better understanding of how government policies and military actions affect individual human beings. And now Marcus Yam is the winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for breaking news photography. It is an honor to welcome LA Times roving correspondent and photographer Marcus Yam to Frank Buckley Interviews. Marcus, thanks for joining us. I know you're in New York on your way once again to Ukraine. Uh, and so thank you for joining us from an airport lounge. It's my privilege to be on the show. Thank you for having me on. I want to talk to you about the, the assignment that you're traveling to in Ukraine um, in a moment. But first, let's go back to Afghanistan. You won the Pulitzer for your work there covering the U.S. withdrawal. I want to ask when you arrived in Afghanistan and what did you see as your mission there? I saw my mission there. When I arrived in Afghanistan, I saw my mission there as a way to bring our readers into the heart of, you know, the story that had been largely forgotten, a, tw a story about a 20-year war, a 20-year occupation. And, you know, I think the world was enraptured with Afghanistan in, after 9-11 because America was on the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And after a while, this war has tur turned into, into a nation building process, apologies. Um, and later on, you know, evolved into a different kind of war where there were no more Western troops in the ground or at least no clear Western presence in the ground. And, you know, the Western backed Afghan forces were now on the forefront of the war. And as years went by, it was clear to me that, you know, the Taliban was growing in strength and they were gaining a lot of ground. And I've only started reporting on Afghanistan since 2017. So, and, and, and when 2021 was creeping close, when the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was creeping close, I knew that, you know, that was, you know, it was not going to end well. Mm -hmm. it, and it didn't end well. And I want to show uh, a photograph about the, the fall of Kabul and then ask you, it's one of the photographs that, 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 that we saw in the Los Angeles Times from, from your camera, uh, and ask you about these men that we see in this photograph. Um, these are, if I remember correctly, these are journalists. Uh, what happened to them? And it's obviously of a very graphic nature. What happened to these men? These were journalists for the newspaper, investigative newspaper named Ethelot Ross. The gentlemen's in there, uh, Nemat and Taki. And um, they were out doing their jobs one day, covering a uh, rally uh, in support of women's rights. And they were filming it. And I guess, and the Taliban basically went and, and captured them and tried to, you know, and, and detain them. And they were lucky enough to hand off their cameras so that their footage could be saved. And, um, and what had happened that day was they were beaten up, they were in, uh, interrogated, and they, they were tortured um, inside the police station. I, I myself had been outside that police station, and when 
and had the Taliban had tried to detain me and my colleague Nabi Bulus, our Middle East correspondent, and but we managed to talk our way out. And I realized like quickly afterwards that there were local journalists still detaining there. We tried to turn around and, and figure out if there was a way to get them out, but uh, eventually they were released. But this this moment right here reminded me of the privilege we have as foreigners, um, foreign journalists, that the Taliban was not going to, in a way, you know, they, they held us to a certain uh, a different standard and they held local journalists to a different standard, but they were willing to to desecrate um, you know their their freedoms and their 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 vitality and and when I met Nemada and Taki later that evening in their headquarters, they I told them what I wanted I needed to show and needed to photograph, and it was so brave and so courageous. And they turned around stoically and just removed their clothes, mm. and revealed these bruises, these these um, these wounds, you know, like you know, as though angry, you know, maps had been painted on their flesh. Yeah. Marcus, when you see that, though, you know that that could happen to you. And and you talked about the fact that in that moment at the police station, you were able to talk yourself, talk your way out of that situation. But can you take us inside your mind and your emotions as you're in that moment? Are you ever fearful for your life? I'm always going to be fearful for my life. I mean, I'm no hero. I mean, no picture is i mean i've always been remembered no pictures worth dying for in that sense um but when i'm working there is like a sort of a, a tunnel vision and you're you're constantly very very focused and you sometimes don't think about your own well-being in that regards um and but you do for others and it's hard to it's hard to balance it it's a very very fine line and and when i you know yeah, I mean, that's basically, essentially, one way to put it. Yeah. We, we've been talking about Ukraine and the indiscriminate nature of the firing from Russian military on Ukraine. But in Afghanistan, it was the U.S. that was often in the position of firing on Afghanistan, going after military targets, but sometimes civilian targets were hit, and, and they weren't targets, targets of course. They were simply homes or cars. And I wanted to share this photograph that, uh, that you took. It's the aftermath of a U.S. drone strike. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it, it took the lives of a number of civilians, including children. Um, can you tell us about a moment like this and how you're able to be there and, and be our witness to this and what that's like? I've covered airstrikes, uh, the aftermath of airstrikes before in places like Iraq, and this is in a way no different. And I think the first thing you need to approach is that the fact that this is a crime scene, you know, and, and or at least treat it like such and try to not desecrate the the uh, the environment, I would say, um, or and try your best to uncover what goes on. We have to, you know, when we first arrive, we have to confirm with everybody what had really gone on. We weren't sure if this was the site of the airstrike. So we had to ask a lot of people what had really happened, how many explosions, how many booms did they hear? Like, how do we know if this is like a missile strike? Or how do we know if this is like a, a suicide bomb attack? Like, we don't know that. And we, you know, using our journalistic process, we have to figure that out and confirm that before we even publish a report. 
So Nabi and I were, were diligent in that sense. And we, we at some point, I looked down onto the site and I realized there was an impact. And we started uh, looking in and, and we found parts. You know, we I, I, somebody handed me a shovel and, and we found parts for a, a, a Hellfire missile uh, uh, in there. And we quickly determined that this was, you know, a missile strike. And can you compare this sort of scene to what you've seen in Ukraine in terms of the indiscriminate nature of Russian fire and the U.S. military? We are told by the U.S. military that when they kill civilians, it is an accident. Does it matter to the people on the ground? I feel like civilian casualties uh, there's no difference between civilian casualties in Ukraine and civilian casualties in Afghanistan. I mean, all civilian life is precious. And in Afghanistan, it was very unfortunate because the, the U.S. government was targeting ISIS-K militants or said they were targeting ISIS-K militants, but instead killed 10 people, including seven children in the, you know, a family compound of the Ahmadi home. Um, and in Ukraine, it's, you know, we, we're still in the thick of things. We, we, we still don't know so much more. I mean, it's clear that sometimes, you know, the, the artillery on the bombardment is indiscriminate, you know, and sometimes, you know, there are things around and, uh, you know, military equipment around present when we are on the ground too. So it's unclear to me what they're really targeting without actually interviewing, you know, the powers that be in Russia. Uh, we, we really don't know. Um, what they're thinking about. I mean, so that, I mean, that's much, that's as much as I can, you know, stipulate. My, my role on the ground is to not, to not so much determine that part. My role on the ground is to bring our readers into the hearts and minds of people on the ground. I mean, the everyday Ukrainians, the everyday Afghans, you know, who are, are, are trying to make sense of this chaos, to, to make sense of their lives. When you are photographing, when you are photographing some of these people, they're often at their most vulnerable moment of their lives. They've lost someone. Uh, they've experienced great suffering. Can you talk to us about your approach to them? Do you simply stand back and start shooting? Do you ask permission? How does it work? My approach to these things um, is that I gently walk in. I make my presence known. I make eye contact with people, and and usually within within a few seconds, you would you know get a sense of whether or not you have a nonverbal consent of whether or not you're allowed to be in there. Um, I make myself small in these situations. I I, I crouch. I, I I you know I slouch a little bit. I make myself into a ball uh, when I when I photograph people in these scenes, and I, I try to you know at the very you know best of my ability, um, try to dignify, you know, some of that suffering and some of that trauma. I mean, nobody wants their pictures taken usually in these moments, but I think also, it's also imperative that, you know, they understand, I try to make them understand, and some, most of them do, that it's imperative that, you know, the story of what went on goes out into the world and, and gets brought to our readers so that, you know, so that they can connect to the people on the ground, they can connect to these uh, victims 
and they can connect to the people who have lost a lot and and it just makes our world so much smaller if a picture can can just do that and can you talk to me about how it affects you personally you are having to see these people in this great suffering to see death in ways that no one should see death um, how do you process it personally? To be honest with you, <laughs> it's still a work in progress. I'm still, I'm getting, you know, I have getting professional help. I compartmentalize in the field as fast as I can. Um, I remind myself, um, this is a public service, what we do, um, you know, not just for the company, but for our readers. Um, uh, there are very few people willing to do what we do. And I think, the gist is basically I, I, I'm still figuring it out. I mean, there, there are a lot of things coming back to me down the road, and I'm sure there will be other things down the road in the long run. But I'm, I'm being proactive about, you know, caring for myself in that sense and, and making sure that I have, like, some sort of support network when I come back. As I mentioned, uh, you are on the way to Ukraine right now. We're actually speaking to you at uh, an airport lounge uh, as you're about to board a flight to head back to Ukraine. I want to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have more with the Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Marcus Yam about his next assignment, Ukraine. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back to Frank Buckley Interviews. We're speaking with L.A. Times roving correspondent and now Pulitzer Prize winning photographer Marcus Yam. Uh, Marcus, uh, we're talking to you at an airport lounge. You're on the road again, uh, heading back to Ukraine. I wanted to ask you about your preparations and thought process uh, as you go into Ukraine. Do you know where you're going? Do you have fixers on the ground? Do you travel with a team? Do you have security? How does it work? I generally, I'm heading, you know, where the story is usually. And for now, I'm heading to the east. Um, we have uh, some local uh, uh, local fixes and translators on the ground that we work with, um, several, in fact. And um, I travel, usually I travel with my work partner, Nabi Bolos. Uh, this time I'll be traveling, you know, with a, a fellow uh, freelance photographer. And, and we never travel alone. I mean, it's a, a safety rule. You always go with a safety buddy. Um, in terms of preparation, it's it's a lot. I mean, it's just getting all the equipment together. It's getting all the medical uh, gear prepared, you know, not just like, you know, the intense medical stuff, but also like the everyday stuff, like from like ibuprofen to Advil to like anti-diarrheal to Sudafed to all the basic over-the-counter pharmaceutical needs. I mean, in case you get like a flu or in case you get a boo-boo cut, you know, like bandages, like simple things like that. You just, everything needs to be thought through and you need to make a plan. You know, you need to have uh, emergency contacts. You need to have, you know, uh, 
a way, a, a workflow for your editors to follow in case something happens to you, and 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 in case you lose contact, what happens then? Like, you know, how long do they wait before they, you know, hit the alarm button? Mm. Those um, kinds of things. Those. We we've been looking at all of these amazing photos of yours. There, there's a one that I want to share with our viewers. It is of you, and I'd like to ask what was happening in that moment for you uh, in in this photograph. This is the uh, this is actually a California wildfire um, up in uh, uh, up in Northern California. I mm. was running around on top of a hill, and we were circled by an, an incoming brush fire. And and I was just, run, just making as many pictures as I can before running out of there, just because it's not get, it's not a great idea to be trapped by a wildfire. Um, you only sometimes have minutes to get your pictures, jump in a car, and get out of there as soon as you can before you know you get completely trapped in there. Mm. It it just goes to the different kinds of dangers that you put yourself in. I. I I really started uh, feeling for Ukraine in a profound way after seeing some of your posts on Instagram. And I wanted to share one of them as the invasion and the immediate days after the invasion happened. You wrote these amazing dispatches. Here's one from day nine. You say civilians pay the highest toll in war. We make our way towards Bucha. We take shelter in a school. The sky turns darker. Artillery shells rain down on the town of Irpin more frequently. The roar of jet fighters echoes through the concrete structures. Civilians with no means of transportation waited out in a shelter with no electricity. A windy freeze sends a shiver. The ground shakes. Artillery shells land in the vicinity. People rush into the shelter. Sound of a passing tank could be heard. Gasp cell signal drops a convoy of getaway cars are supposed to arrive some pray when you're writing that is it after a moment of reflection at the end of the day how do you and when do you decide to write that sort of dispatch i write those dispatches at the end of the day when i'm reflecting as you said and it's a way for, it's like a diary for me to keep track of my feelings or my observations of what went on or, 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 or other people's feelings that, you know, or, or visceral reactions to things that are going on on the ground. Um, I, you know, I started that as a way to remind myself, you know, because in war, sometimes three to four weeks of war can sometimes feel like six months. And I think you need a final, a quick way to document everything, even in short, you know, even in short dispatches. Um, so it's it's been an interesting process, and I, I actually look forward to going back to 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 write, continuing these, these dispatches when I return to Eastern Ukraine. I want to show some more photos of your work in in Kiev. Again, this was the initial stanza of the war in Ukraine and, and some of the photos that you brought to us. And as we look at them, I, I want to know what you decide to photograph, how you decide to select what goes to your photo editors, and what is the process at the LA Times of selecting which one of your photographs make it into the newspaper or onto the website? I mean, it's a, it's, it's not a clear, it's not a clear cut process. I would say, I usually start with what are people not doing, 
and let's go do it. Um, and, where, and when I see other media, other photographers are, or other outlets, I usually go the other direction. And that's like my general rule of approaching journalism. And with, with in, in images, I try to find images that, that are, are in a way guttural and visceral uh, that I have, a, you know, that, that, that give me a reaction. Um, I tend to always shoot photograph at least in the edge of light. Um, that's my, you know, preferred. And also at a certain time of day, I, I, I tend to always like being standing in darkness, looking into the light and mm. try to find a way to carve things out. Like, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of looking at classical painting mm. and, and I've always been inspired by, you know, the, uh, all the stuff I see in museums. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a, I don't have a background in art. I don't have a background in art history whatsoever. In fact, I have a, you know, a technical background. I have a degree in aerospace engineering. So it's like all of that is just like, you know, in some sense, mumble jumbo in my head. But I, I try to go after what moves me. Um, and in terms of what goes to my editors, I make a few selects. I, 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 I try to self-edit on the field because there's not much time to, to do the work that we do and stay in the field. So you want to, you know, oftentimes we're working 20, you know, 18 to 20 hours a day, sometimes with like four hours of sleep almost every day. And you want to like be efficient about it. You want to be good about time management. So I send a few, like a dozen or two dozen photos at most for the day. And then like, you know, with, you know, elongated captions and, 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 and reports, you know, text reports back. Mm. and they decide afterwards and they decide everything i mean they would you know with some sort of feedback from from us on the ground um about what's going what's really going on yeah i always encourage our viewers and and the people who follow me on social media to honor your work and the work of of those of you who are risking your lives to bring us the story but i wonder at times when the news appetite seems to go away when there are other events happening in the U.S. or politics or whatever, and as the interest goes away from Afghanistan or Ukraine, and you're still on the ground, risking your life, bringing us that story, is it frustrating? Is it upsetting? Tell us about what it feels like on the ground when we are going about our lives and maybe don't care as much, knowing what you're seeing. In some sense, it's frustrating. It's it feels like a moral injury to not have readers care about the the ongoing conflicts that you're working in. Uh, it's another. To, I mean, I take solace in the fact that readers still pay attention to the news. I mean, even if they if it's a you know a news coverage on like you know the recent Supreme Court um, uh, Supreme Court debacle and also like you know the the recent school shootings in Texas, I, I take solace. I do take solace in the fact that people still care. And even if their attention's moved away, um, you know, I encourage everybody, including, you know, my Instagram followers to like the readers that we have to to subscribe to their local news organizations at the very best. I mean, just, you know, pay their, do their civic duty and be informed. Um, there is one topic when it comes to war coverage that is controversial, and that is the idea of shooting bodies and how to do that in a way, and should it be done at all, and should those images be shared with viewers and readers? Uh, do you have a thought on that? 
I generally photograph everything. I mean, I, but my approach has been to be a little more respectful in the approach. I, I do my absolute best not to show faces if I can. Um, only probably because it's, you never know whose child this is. You never know whose, you know, relative this is, you know, even if they're like, you know, even when I'm photographing dead Russian soldiers, it's somebody's child. Some poor mother in, in Russia is going to discover that her, you know, her son had died in the war. And I think it's your responsibility to give dignity even to the dead. Yeah. Um, that's our responsibility at the very least. I, I, I think it's important to show some of these atrocities that are going on in the ground. I think sometimes violence can be, you know, images of violence can be gratuitous. It's a, a discussion and it's a debate uh, that should be had in the newsroom before anything's published. And I leave it up to the editors usually to make these decisions. It's, I would say, it's above my pay grade. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are going to take one more short break. And we'll be back with Pulitzer Prize winner, Marcus Yan. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome back. We're uh, in conversation right now with Marcus Yam, the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer from the Los Angeles Times. Uh, Marcus, you, you alluded to this earlier. You, your uh, training is in aerospace technology. You, as I understand it, wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, when did you decide to become a photojournalist and what prompted that change in your personal journey? I had a, a gentleman, uh, his name is John Davis, and he was a photo editor at the Buffalo News who who decided to convince me that I, I ought to be a photographer. Um, I had just recently picked up a, a camera for the first time ever and, and just started taking pictures. Uh, and and he saw some of those pictures and he really, 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 really just, you know, worked so hard to convince. We had a 45 minute conversation and, and lo and behold, and I, I was given an internship at the Buffalo News, and, and I think weeks into it, I something shifted. Mm. It was like it was though the planets all aligned, and I knew this was what I was supposed to do for the rest of my life, and that's usually that's how it went. And I think in terms of my degree, it doesn't hurt to have a technical degree, and it's helped my approach. I'm I'm, I'm much more thoughtful and much more analytical, um, and methodical in the things I do. I'm I'm logistically oriented. Oh, which is actually very helpful for this job that I have right now. Well, they say 90% of journalism is uh, logistics, so that's that's good. Um, and clearly it has, uh, I don't know if the right word phrase is paid off, but you, you are now a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. But you still live out of a suitcase, I know that personally. And I just wonder, do you pay a personal price and is it worth it to you to continue to pay that price? I do pay a personal price. I mean, not having a home is, is difficult, you know, being quote unquote, you know, uh, 
on the road and, and in a way, in a strange way, homeless is difficult to, it's difficult to maintain, you know, relationships. It's difficult to constantly be in touch with family, being far away from everybody and being alone half the time and, and always waking up in a different hotel room is is challenging. I have to remind, I, I it, it was very jarring in the beginning, but I, I've gotten very, very used to just waking up. What, what, what country am I in now? Wow. Um, it, and I think it's uh, it, it 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 it's it adds into the whole like long term care for myself. But eventually, this is an issue I'll, I'll have to address down the road. Yeah. But for now, it's worth it because I, I I get to do the work I want to do. I get I have the best job in the world, the best boss in the world. I can't ask for better. Mm-hmm. I mean, like. Uh, you know, I, it, I, like I said before, this, what we do is so special. Right. We have such a privilege walking into these worlds, walking into people's homes, entering their lives at, 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 at the most poignant moment of their lives and and really picturing it for our readers. It's, 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 it's public service. Well, Marcus, we thank you for that service and we congratulate you once again on the 2022 uh, Pulitzer Prize for breaking news uh, photography and we wish you a great safety in the, the weeks and months ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast and if you're not a subscriber, I hope you'll do it today. It's free, of course, and it'll ensure that you won't miss a single episode of our podcast, which drops every week on Wednesday. You can also see our interviews on KTLA on the weekends and on YouTube. As always, thanks for sharing us on social media with your friends. Tag me when you do. I'm Frank Buckley TV on Twitter and on Instagram. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'll see you on TV.